United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. Myrna Gaelic is Senior Policy Analyst for China and East Asia at the United States Institute of Peace, here to discuss the Japanese Prime Minister's meeting with Biden at the White House on Friday. Hi, Myrna. Hi, Julie. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good, thank you. <clears throat> so this comes at an interesting time. Um, Japan is 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 getting militaristic again. They're building up their military, but the world seems to be viewing that not with alarm, just so much as just uh, notice. Yes, um, certainly Japan has announced some new. Uh, features in its national security strategy that it released in December, including uh, what they're calling counter-strike capability, which refers to the ability to target missiles within an attacking country's territory, and that's new. Um, militaristic is a bit of a loaded term. I think they're, they are certainly um, amping up their defense, but there's a lot of details that uh, go into that, and, and it's a bit of a complicated analysis. So what does the uh, what is the Japanese prime minister's agenda for this meeting? So I think, you know, Japan is one of our most important allies and the White House emphasized this with the invitation of the former prime minister as the first foreign visitor to the White House in 2021. And now it's Prime Minister Kishida's turn. But for Japan, this is part of a a bigger set of visits. Uh, On the first of the year, Japan took over the presidency of the G7. And this week, um, Kishida is doing a number of visits to G7 countries, starting with France today and capping it off with the U.S. on Friday. That's really interesting. Um, For these meetings, there's usually an ask. There's usually something they want that that they seek. What is it for Japan right now? So again, I think uh, Prime Minister Kishida's focus is very strongly on the U.S.-Japan alliance. And in addition to talking about uh, preparations for the G7 summit in Hiroshima in May, he'll also be talking to President Biden about Japan's uh, changes to its national security strategy and how they can work more closely with the U.S. uh, to strengthen the alliance, given some of the changes that Japan has made and also some of the spending increases Japan is planning over the next five years. They're certainly planning to double their defense budget uh, by 2027. So that's a lot of new spending and a lot of potential for um, closer cooperation and integration of U.S. and Japanese operations in the region. How is the uh, Japanese economy doing, Myrna? Well, the economy is doing not super great, but I really can't speak to that very, <laughs> very well, unfortunately, <laughs> as I'm much more focused on the security side of things, mm-hmm. which is always a bit easier. There's always something happening on that front. Of course, Japan has had some terrible scares from North Korea in the past year. That's correct. Yes. The the number of missiles um, that North Korea has fired in 2022 far exceeds that of any previous year. And certainly that has fed into Japan's growing sense of insecurity. Um, and that's part of why they have debuted this um, authority for counter-strike capability. They've always had the ability to do traditional missile, well, not always, but they've for a long time had the ability to do traditional missile defense, which means striking incoming missiles out of the sky. And they've also relied on the U.S. capability for first strike. But now they feel that this is not sufficient enough for their defense, given the extreme, you know, uptick in North Korean missiles and also China's modernization and diversification of its missile arsenal as well. 
Well, I mean, for the Japanese people, like, you know, it's one thing, you know, from a la distance, we kind of laugh at North Korea shooting all their missiles into the ocean and the futility of that. But but for for the Japanese people hearing air raid sirens, right, and knowing that missiles are flying over their country, uh, that has got to be incredibly disturbing. I, there must be a lot of pressure on the public leaders there to, you know, do something. Yes, indeed. And in fact, you know, Counter-strike capability has been controversial in Japan historically, but there is now overwhelming popular uh, support for the measure because of what you what exactly what you've said. There's a really high sense of insecurity with mm-hmm. Korea's missiles flying or North Korea's missiles flying regularly. I was actually in Japan in November for meetings, and I think there were like ten missile launches in one day or something extreme while we were there. And it's just very, yeah, you know, it's very disturbing for a regular member of the public. Right. And Myrna, when you're there, how do they alert the people that it's happening? Well, there's news alerts that are happening. And I think, you know, missiles that aren't necessarily flying towards Japan's actual territory, but maybe landing in the waters outside are different than ones that are flying over Japan. So there's different, obviously, measures for different types of missiles. And when I was there, I think there was a little bit of a less concern that they would be you know, landing in Japan, for example. Mm. How is the uh, how is the rest of the region dealing with um, Japan's new security ideas about itself? Well, I think it's also important to remember that Japan may have announced new capabilities that it wants to have in the next five years, but Japan has continued to maintain its exclusively defense-oriented policy posture. So that means that they can only respond to actual attacks on Japan, not even just the threat or potential attack, but actual attacks that have been initiated. And it's a bit complicated to understand this because it's hard to sometimes pinpoint when an attack has been initiated, especially if you're talking about missiles that have yet to be launched. But there are specific calculations Japan has to figure this out. And so The announcement of Counter-Strike doesn't change this defensive-oriented policy. It just adds a layer of um, measures that Japan can use in the service of this policy. So certainly Japan has been very clear that its efforts are very much focused on deterrence and that that that's what its main priority is. So in that sense, its posture hasn't changed, really. Um, You know, you've had different reactions to this in the region. I think the Chinese and the North Koreans were very negative, of course, and have, you know, mentioned that they they see this as Japan rearming. But the Japanese have definitely rejected that as um, not what their intention is. And I think the allies that they have in the region are much more understanding of the need to do this. And certainly allies outside of the region, such as in the United States and Europe, have welcomed these moves. Hmm. And so Prime Minister Kishida, is he how is he at home? Is he in good odor with the people? Uh, there have been some controversies that he, his administration has faced, um, including with uh, some uh, religious organizations. The, the Church of National Unification, I think, has had some controversy and some officials in his administration have been caught up in that. So he's not necessarily in the best position. Um, but, you know, the G7 is a strong priority for Japan. So I think that, you know, you'll certainly see him stay in office at least until the meeting in May and uh, whether or not he chooses to call elections after that, um, we'll see. But he has said that he can call some snap elections at, a, at an opportune time. Myrna Gaelic, Senior Policy Analyst for China and East Asia at the United States Institute of Peace. Myrna, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Julie. Have a great day. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.